0: morning, Christian Fellowship Church. I uh, want to invite you to uh, pray with me as we get into a, a, a tough question that you may have been asked by maybe not just unbelievers, but uh, other other uh, neighbors that you have that, that are um, Christian or members of your own household, friends who uh, are unsure about some things. Um, and we're going to go to God's Word to address it. So I ask you to pray with me as we begin. Father, we need you to speak clearly to us. You've given us your word, but we're sometimes hard-hearted. We're sometimes uh, maybe just tired, distracted. And so we need your spirit to minister to us right now so that we can be attentive to your word. Uh, I pray that you would um, limit the ways in which I can get in the way. I pray that I would be clear. Uh for the sake of all who listen now, I pray that all of us, including myself, will live in response to it, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the big questions you'll get is, um, when it comes to the exclusive claims of Christianity, you, Jesus is the way, what about those who haven't heard that Jesus is the way? Is it fair that they end up in hell because they didn't hear it? They didn't get the opportunity. What about them? And the question is usually posed in a way to to assume that, hey, that's, that's not fair. It's not fair to hold people accountable to something they have not heard. And that makes some immediate sense to us to think about that. Um, it also is a big deal because it's not just theoretical. It's not like we have to go back a century or two to think about a time where so many people around the world haven't heard. Uh, I brought this up on my phone uh, just so I can share it with you the website is Global Frontier Missions, and they want to explain in this portion of the website what is an unreached people group. Take a listen. It is estimated that of the 7.75 billion people alive in the world today, 3.23 billion of them live in unreached people groups with little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So out of 7.75 billion people in the world estimated, the estimate is that 3.23 billion of them live in unreached people groups with little or no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to the Joshua Project, that's another website, you might be familiar with that one, there are approximately 17,446 unique people groups in the world with 7,400 plus of them considered unreached. That's over 41% of the world's population in 2022. Unreached. Over 41% of the world. The vast majority, 85% of these least reached groups exist in the 1040 window and less than 10% of missionary work is done among these people. Then they describe This will be brief, but they describe what is an unreached people group. I think that's important. And here's how they describe it. unreached people group or least reached people group is an identifiable group of people distinguished by a distinct culture, language, or social class who lack a community of Christians able to evangelize the rest of the people group without outside help. The only opportunity for the people group to hear about salvation is through an external witness. Most missiologists consider 2% of the population becoming Christ followers as the tipping point at which the group is generally considered reached with the gospel. So any people group or society that is less than 2% Christian, they consider unreached. You don't have a, a church assembly that's going out and talking and sending and proclaiming. And they consider 2%, which is pretty low, but 2% to be that tipping point where you can consider them reached, not fully reached, but reached enough to not be in that category of they've not gotten the gospel. Now, it's easy for us to think about out there, there's people groups that have not heard any gospel message, but I think about how many unreached people we have here who've heard the wrong gospel message. And let's let's be frank, if you've heard the wrong gospel message, you've yet to hear the gospel message. Have you met people in your life that maybe they grew up in church or they have a background in church or their parents used to read them Bible stories or something like that, and when you explain the gospel clearly to them, they are hearing it for the first time. How many testimonies have you heard? I've heard where people say, "I, I grew up in church, but it wasn't until this time, this preacher, I heard the gospel clearly for the first time. A couple years ago, I was sitting in a class. This class is really, it's a group that is sort of a capstone experience for seminary students. And uh, in this particular group, uh, we had to go around and share what we think the mission of the church is. You're going to go out there in ministry. What is the mission of the church? In one sentence, go. And everyone has come. The students have come with their papers prepared. And one student's mission statement was something like, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the poor of the world. I mean, it sounds really, I mean, it's good. We should take the gospel to the poor of the world. But I asked one question. I mean, this wasn't planned. I didn't see the paper ahead of time, and I wasn't trying to be cheeky, but I just asked him, what obligations does the church have to the rich? And he sat there. There's a student about to graduate and about to go out there and plant a church pulled out his pen, clicked it, and added rich people. Right? Now, here, here's why I bring this up. What kind of gospel do you think you're wielding if it's pertinent only to people who are under a certain tax bracket? But how, how do you preach that gospel without making it about status, climbing the social ladder? That is not the gospel. Now, I'm not saying Christians have no obligations to the poor. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you think that the gospel is for the, the poor monetarily poor you've got the wrong gospel i was in a community where there was a bunch of churches doing activities and i got to meet a pastor who was um had moved in the area uh, from somewhere else and was starting a new church and he just started talking about the people and the city and the town that he was in and how much How lost they were and they were caught up in so many different things and so many distractions and they're hurting and they're confused and they've been hurt even by churches in the past. And so I'm starting this church to speak to those people. I asked him a simple question. What do they need? What do those people need? His answer? Community. They need community. They need other people. Well, then why are you starting a church, man? Why don't you start a bowling league? Right? Right? That is not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not, hey, you're lonely, let's get together. So when you think about unreached people groups, you might be staring at an unreached person next time you're at lunch, next time you go to work. You might walk into a church, and it's full of people that have yet to hear the gospel. Because if our seminaries are churning out people who don't know how to express the gospel, and we've got pastors around us, planting churches, and they don't know what the gospel is, we have unreached people here. So this is not a far-off question, and we're not thinking about, you know, cannibals that live somewhere, and they don't wear clothes. There's that, but there's also our neighbors. What happens to people who don't hear the gospel? Can they be saved some other way, or do they have to hear the gospel to be saved? So we're not going to take a big chunk today because it's such a big question. We're going to be right at uh, chapter 10 of the book of Romans as we continue our series in Romans. Would you turn there, please? Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Last time we covered the very end of chapter 9 and going into chapter 10. Just a brief recap. Paul's argument here, because so we're going to get lost in the argument. He's making a side point here, and this side point is going to be our whole message today. But it is a side point. The bigger point he's making is he's trying to explain to the Israelites why so few of them are in right now and why so many Gentiles are coming. All these Gentiles are coming. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have Moses. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the prophets. And what God is saying is hey, this message, this gospel is inclusive. Anybody can, can come in. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be of an ethnic background. You don't have to be a certain tax bracket. You don't have to be to, uh, from a certain geographical area. You don't need a resume at all. God's not asking for for applications. He's not checking your references. He knows we all fail. So, but wherever we come from, anywhere in the world, they're coming in droves, and the Israelites that are like, what is going on? Paul's explaining. They're coming in because it's about faith. Now he's anticipating the question, how do you get faith? How do you come to the point where you have faith, and how do you come to the point where you get saved? And so he's taking this inclusive gospel that's open to everybody. You see it right there in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a promise that is inclusive to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. You don't need a resume. You don't need to come with certain things. You just come calling on the Lord who's got the resume for you. He's done it. So everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's pretty clear. If X does Y, the result is Z. That's it. It's it's sure and it's secure. But even though the message is inclusive in the sense that anybody who calls on the name of the Lord is saved, it's also exclusive. It's not obvious in verse 13 because if you say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved, that doesn't mean there's not a different way to be saved. You uh, tell somebody, you know, everybody who, I don't know, just making this up, but everybody who comes over tonight is going to get pizza. Okay, that's great. If I come over, I get pizza. But if I don't come over, is there another way to get pizza? Yeah. So by itself, grammatically, it doesn't mean there's no other way. So that's why I think Paul leans in to make sure we're clear that what he does mean is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. Anyone who doesn't call on the name of the Lord cannot be saved. He's arguing that. Stating it positively, it's true. But if you reverse it, it's untrue. You you cannot be saved unless you call on the name of the Lord. So then that presses the question. What about those who haven't heard? What about those who, poor soul, they're stuck in a church where the pastor week after week doesn't preach the gospel? His answer to them is that for anyone to be saved, they must hear the gospel. And if they don't hear the gospel, there's no way for them to be saved. Are you telling me, Pastor Lucas, those billions of people that haven't heard? Yeah, and I'm I'm including the people outside of that group that we just read the stats of that supposedly have heard, but nah, they haven't really heard. They haven't really heard. That student and that pastor I referenced, they've heard. They They just pushed it to the margins and adjusted it for their ministries but the people under their ministries going forward, they're not going to hear it. Well, that, that student did make a change. Hopefully, hopefully he gets it straight. Look at verse 14. He starts this chain, this sort of logical chain to explain that you must call on the name of the Lord to be saved, and if you don't call on the name of the Lord, you can't be saved. Verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's going to be our whole text today. Let's just back up and take it a little bit at a time. He starts out with this chain of questions where he says that they are unable to call on him if they haven't believed, they're unable to believe if they haven't heard, and they are unable to hear unless someone preaches, and unless someone preaches, uh, no one is going to be there to preach unless they're sent. That's his logic. If you take it backwards, he's saying preachers must be sent, sent preachers must preach the gospel, the preached gospel must be heard, the hearers must believe, and the believers must call on the name of the Lord. That's the chain to be saved, people are sent so that the gospel is preached. The gospel is preached so that the gospel is heard. When the gospel is heard, those who believe it call on the name of the Lord. And that's how they're saved. That's how they're saved. Now, because he puts this in these rhetorical questions, you know that he's saying there's no other way because he's been using the rhetorical question that way throughout the whole book. You know what a rhetorical question is, answering it is dumb because it wasn't meant to get an answer. Parents do it all the time, teachers do it all the time, employers do it all the time. Now if somebody says, I don't have my car today, and if I don't have my car today, is there another way to get to work? Now that's a genuine question. I'm saying I don't have my car, is there another way to get to work? But if somebody says, my my car doesn't work, and if my car doesn't work, how am I supposed to get to work? They're not asking you for a list. They're saying, without the car, I can't get to work. Understand? The rhetorical question is not a genuine question. The genuine question is like, can you give me some options, please? The rhetorical question is, the answer is embedded in the question. If I don't have this, I can't get that. So when Paul says, how will they call on him if they've not believed, he's not asking the Romans to write him back a letter and go, well, Paul, here are the options. What he means is, they can't believe if they haven't heard. Because faith comes through hearing. That's exclusive. That means there are loads of people who don't get to hear the gospel and if they don't get to hear the gospel, they cannot be saved. The gospel is how people are saved. Hearing the message is how people are saved and God and sending preachers is how God does it. Now you might go, well, oh, God could send an angel or God could give somebody a dream. Paul's not really leaving those options on the table here. He's certainly not asking the Romans to bank on it. Eh, don't send a missionary. He has cherubim. No. He wants them to, to feel the weight of the need to send preachers. Because without preachers, the people can't hear. And if the people can't hear, they can't be saved. They can't be saved. That's a hard message on a couple of fronts. The first reason why it's hard is because it sounds, uh, sounds unloving, it sounds unfair, that so many people wouldn't hear the gospel. But let's be clear on a couple of things that we've learned from the book of Romans so far. And that first thing that we need to keep in mind, the thing that is assumed in the question, how... What about people who haven't heard, huh? What about that? that? what's being assumed is they are innocent people who are unjustly being condemned to hell, and it's unfair because they're not ge- being given the way out. Well Paul has made clear in chapter one, if you remember back in chapter one verses eight to 32, Paul makes it clear that everyone is guilty without the message. Let me, let me put it to you this way. People aren't in hell because they reject Christ. Think about that. People aren't in hell because they reject Christ. Why are people in hell? Because they sin. It, it's not you're innocent, innocent, heard the message. Now nah, I don't want the message. Ooh, now you're guilty. No, no, no. It's guilty, guilty, guilty. I don't even deserve to hear the message. But if I do hear the message, there's the opportunity But that doesn't mean before that opportunity, I was innocent. We would be making people guilty if they were out there fine by themselves, spearing each other over the neighbor's pig, cannibalizing each other in the jungle somewhere. They're just innocent people. But then some missionary came with the Bible, translated in their language, taught them the gospel, and now they're like, no, I don't want that gospel. Now they're going to hell. Well, What would we send that missionary for? We should have left them alone so that they could be saved in their ignorance. But what Paul is arguing in Romans 1 is that you are not saved in your ignorance. That's why chapter 1 was so hard. We are guilty in Adam. So what is the solution? Don't send missionaries, the opposite. The opposite. Send preachers because they have to hear preachers in order to turn and be saved. Well, what if they don't? Well, then that's on them. But that doesn't make them guilty now. It does make them guiltier. It does make them more guilty. You don't have to turn there, but I'm just a, you might remember the passage. It's in uh, Matthew 11. Jesus is doing miracles in front of people. He's, he's healing people. He's casting out demons. And they don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. If you've ever ministered or witnessed to somebody and they're like, well, if God just showed up in my life and proved himself, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. We've already seen it. Jesus showed up on the scene, walked on water, calmed storms, cast demons out that nobody could cast out, healed a hand, healed the paralytic, healed the blind guy, healed another blind guy, healed remotely. You don't have to go there, Lord, just say it. You're right. What awesome faith. Says it. Healed over there. And then what what, uh, Jesus tells them, these unrepentant cities in uh, Matthew 11, he began to denounce those cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Now, think about that. He didn't do one mighty work or two mighty works. The bulk share of his mighty works were done in these places. And because of that high exposure to truth, that high exposure to who Jesus really is, they are more guilty than other people. Now, Jesus doesn't say those other people are off the hook. He just says you're more guilty than them. They're guilty. You're guiltier. You're because of the high exposure of truth. He denounced the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. This is uh, Matthew eleven twenty, 20, but I'll just read it to you. Because they did not repent, woe to you, Corzin! woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, but I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. They're both going to judgment. You heard that? That doesn't mean the first person who has a less, uh, a lesser judgment has no judgment. It doesn't mean hell is going to be a joy ride. What a fun amusement park for them. It's still hell. It's more hellish for the person who's exposed to more truth. It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And he says, and you, Capernaum, will... Will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, goodness, remember Sodom? But he's saying, if I walked around in Sodom, Sodom wouldn't have been destroyed. As wicked as they were, go back and read it. Go back and read those accounts of Sodom. Jesus is saying, had I showed up there in person, those wicked people banging on Lot's door, they would have turned. And you won't. I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Where does Sodom belong? The pillaging, raping, murderous people of Sodom. How much hell are they going to get? The people that saw Jesus healing are like, kill that guy. Worse. Doesn't mean it's a joy ride for these people. Worse for these people. And we don't get that directly from our text. I just want you to understand. That what Paul is saying is, those who haven't heard are still guilty, but there are levels of guilt. I think, putting those passages together, that those who haven't heard the message, judgment will be more tolerable for them than for those who hear the message and reject it. And I think the argument can be made, those who change the gospel and preach the wrong gospel, when people are showing up and they should be hearing the gospel, they're preaching something else. they need to hear, and they need to hear the message, not something else. And even if there's a chance that if they reject it, it'll be worse from them, we have to preach it because if they embrace it, they escape hell altogether. And we've got to take that chance. We've got to offer that opportunity to people. Why? Because God said so, that's why. We don't calculate who's ready for it. Is this person more ready for it? Are they gonna reject it? I'm not sure. I don't want to make them guiltier. That is not for you to figure out. Our job is to take the good news of Jesus Christ and bring it to people who haven't heard it. So he starts that chain. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they believe in him whom they've not heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And we think about this idea that. Everyone is already guilty before they're preached to. We need to also understand that there's a difference between God's justice and God's mercy. Even though he's both. They don't work the same way. An easy way to prove that is to think about if there is a crime and that crime is not punished, did justice happen? No. No. For justice to be just, the crime has to be punished. So that's not optional, right? It's not optional. Justice has to be met, and if it's unmet, it's unmet. The crime has to be punished. For there to be justice, there's no option. God being just, he has to punish the crime. If he ever in any instance doesn't punish the crime, he is then unjust. And he can't be unjust. So he must demonstrate justice in every instance. mercy isn't the same because mercy by definition is optional if I have to be merciful it wasn't mercy there's some outside obligation making me do it but it's not mercy to do it mercy means you don't deserve it and I gave it to you anyway I don't have to do it that's what mercy is mercy is bound up with the me not having to do it for you you don't deserve it what you deserve is justice but I have the option to supply you mercy. I decide to have mercy on you, but I don't have to do, I don't have to do that, because if I don't, there's justice. I hope that makes sense, because we have this idea that God is just, but he's merciful, and he has to demonstrate mercy. Eh, Go back to the dictionary on mercy. That is not what mercy means. We're, We're undoing the definition of mercy, if we think God is obligated to show mercy. He is not obligated to show mercy. He is obligated to demonstrate justice. Now, here's how justice and mercy are taken care of in the cross. He can't just go, you know what, I'm going to show you mercy. The justice thing, I'm just going to cast it over here. Just paying all attention to it. Forget it. Then he would be unjust. So he takes the punishment that was due me, puts it on Christ. The punishment doesn't disappear. Someone else took it. And in that way, he got to demonstrate both justice and mercy in one act of Christ's death and resurrection. That's the message we bear. God is just. And because of that, you are lost. You are condemned like I was. But there's an opportunity for that justice to be taken care of by someone else so that you can be granted mercy. God doesn't have to do that, and he doesn't have to proclaim that to everybody. He chooses. Go back to the clay and the potter example that we've seen before in this book and in Jeremiah. So God must demonstrate his justice. He decides to whom he'll show mercy. That's why Moses said he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. But You won't see the Bible saying he'll have justice on whom he'll have justice. Justice always has to be. Because justice is not optional, mercy is optional, and therefore God exercises the option. It's not up to us to decide how many get to hear. At what point is God fair? How many people have to hear it before God is fair? It's not about fairness. What's fair is nobody hears. If no one hears the gospel, including us, that's fair. And I, I, I implore you to go back and read these. The first. Nine chapters of Romans on your own. Again, lock it in. It's a hard, These are hard truths, but everything else doesn't make sense without it. It would be fair if God gave nobody the message, but he does give some people the message, and he gives us the responsibility to be bearers of that message and to go out there and get the message out. He says, there to preach, in verse 15, and then he quotes from Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Isaiah's thinking about this time where Israel has been kicked out of their land. They're completely owned by the Babylonians. There will be a time when people come with good news to tell Israel, hey, captivity's over. Captivity's over. We can come back to the land. We can come back together. We're free. There's freedom. And it's not that literally their feet are beautiful, right? They're beautiful because they hurry and they run and they're swift and quick with the message that is beautiful. And that beautiful message is the good news of Jesus Christ. That for wherever you're from, however you're scattered in the world, you can be brought into this city. You can be brought into this body, into this covenant through Jesus Christ. And that message is a beautiful message to those who are lost without it. And he says, we bring that good news. If you've ever wondered, we say gospel a lot. What is, gospel is just another word for good news. The good news. And that good news, verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The good news is the word of Christ. That's why if you ask somebody, what is the good news? And they're like, well, people need community. And there's no Christ in it. There's no sin in it. <laughs> that wasn't the gospel. The gospel is the word of Christ. And the gospel is not a generic God. There's a God out there, and God loves you, and if you come to him and worship him, he'll be pleased, and you'll be good. That's not the gospel. Why? The word of Christ. Why do we need Christ? The gospel is God-created man to worship him. We don't worship him. We worship everything but him. We worship ourselves instead of him. So we're lost. We're estranged. We've cut ourselves off by that false worship from the source of life himself. If you cut yourself off from the source of life, what do you get? Death. Death. Jesus came to be the God-man who is the perfect worshiper in life and takes the death that the false worshiper should have taken upon himself and then rose again to bring us into a worshipful relationship with God as we should be. And then we call for somebody to put their faith in that. That's the gospel. That's the word of Christ, and we need to proclaim it Clearly, why do we need a class? Why do we need classes on evangelism and apologetics? Why spend the first two classes talking about content? Because taking them to Starbucks and talking about things like poverty and community, that might be a nice conversation, but that's still not a gospel conversation. Unless you get to the problem, what we owe God, the impossibility of us paying it back, and the need for a substitute so that it's paid and justice is met, and we can be granted mercy. Outside of that, it was some other conversation, but it wasn't the word of Christ. So the beautiful feet present that good news. But look what he says in verse 16, a little surprise statement. He says there in verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. So you've got people who've never heard, then you've got people who've heard and have responded in belief and have been saved then you've got people who never heard, now they've heard it, and now they're lost are they're, they're more wayward now as a result. So anybody thinking, Paul, you're making it worse for some people. You haven't thought of this. Yeah, I did. Verse 16. Not everyone has responded to the gospel. Does that undo the call to go preach the gospel? No. No. We preach it. Because some do. I love when Jesus tells his disciples that he's gonna transform their fishing. And he tells them that he's gonna make them fishers of men. And he tells them, You from now on, you will catch men. Now, I don't know how many of you love fishing. Are you guaranteed? Are you guaranteed to take that Polaroid? It's not Polaroid anymore? You know the picture with the big fish? You're not guaranteed. Catch these little things, you throw it back, it's embarrassing. You come home with nothing. Why would you spend five hours out there? Yeah, it's fun. Good for you. Um, You're not guaranteed a catch. Fishing's hit or miss. But what Jesus said is, from now on, you will catch men. The church is going to advance, the kingdom of God is going to advance, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. That's not just something to put on a ceramic mug. Remind yourself over breakfast. I mean, that is God's promise through Jesus Christ that as we preach the good news, people will respond. Not all of them will respond, but people will respond, and they wouldn't have responded had that truth not gone to them. We need to understand that when Paul uses the word preaching here in verse 14, in verse 15, the sent ones in verse 15, the beautiful feet, those through whom people hear the gospel, verse 17, he doesn't mean preachers, the paid guys. He doesn't mean preachers, the seminary graduates. He means the people who convey the good news. They're preachers because they're taking this good news and bringing it down from the mountain with beautiful feet going, here's the good news. It's available to you. There's nothing here about apostles or uh, with a capital A. There's nothing here about pastors or elders We're we're all in this. We carry this message. And we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand Paul to say this is only for paid missionaries that go to the ends of the earth and they send you a letter once in a while. You put money in a basket and you've done your mission. No, you're helping them do their mission somewhere else. But the missionary in your town, the missionary on your street, the missionary in your workplace, at your gym is you. By virtue of the fact that you have the message and they don't. You know what's scary? You know what's disturbing? I said this is disturbing in a couple of ways. And the first one is because we're trying to think about the fairness of God. And I hope that I gave you some, some things to chew on there to understand. No, God is completely just and he's completely righteous and he's completely holy. If anyone never even heard the gospel. But in his mercy, some do get to hear the gospel. We need to chew on that. I understand if you're newly exposed to that idea, you need to chew on it a little more. More devastating than that to me is my responsibility to give people the only chance they have to be saved and that my silence can cut them off from it. That's scary. Shame on me for opportunities I've had, and I just am too busy, I'm too tired. I don't want the conversation to be awkward, and so I just kind of dodge it. And I've got these degrees. Some of you are like, well, if I just knew more. It's not about knowledge. It's about being a coward, oftentimes. It's about being selfish, oftentimes. This is going to steer my day a different way. I don't have time. But Paul explains here that the only way for people to be saved is for them to hear And the only way they can hear is if people preach it. And the only way people preach it is if they are sent. Am I sent? When Jesus is about to ascend and he tells his disciples, the last thing I'm going to tell you is go make disciples. We could take that one or two ways. One, we could take that he meant those 11 disciples because Judas wasn't there. And that's it. That's a professional office. The rest of us, we just go about our lives, you know what I'm saying? Saving for retirement. Make sure our kids have it better than we did, and then we die, and then hopefully our grandkids will be better because our kids. The same kind of cycle everybody else. The American dream? Or am I sin? Do I have an obligation to proclaim the gospel to people who've heard false gospels, wrong gospels, unclear gospels, or no gospel at all? What's my responsibility in that regard? Notice he doesn't put any responsibility on the preacher to change people. The responsibility of the preacher is to proclaim the truth. Not any one of us can change anybody else. They have to be met by God's grace. But we are charged to preach. We are sent because we are folded into that great commission. We are folded into that great commission. And so even though everyone is not going to respond, we don't get disheartened by verse 16. Because verse 16 is true, doesn't undo the mission. We do it because 16 isn't the whole story. Not all have obeyed the gospel, but many do. But many do. If you get the door slammed in your face 15 times, but that 16th time, somebody's like, where has this message been my whole life? I mean, isn't that worth it? Isn't that worth it to have that one conversation, you lost all these friends and you lost this job, but this person would be in hell if you didn't have that coffee with them? Think about that. That's worth it for that one conversation, and it might take 20, 50 times. That one conversation, somebody's plucked out and gets to sing that song with us, that he saved me and raised me up, they get to sing that now? Because I'm stumbling around, I don't know who's going to change, but I'm throwing the message out there like the sower with the seed. He's not too, I think that soil looks good. He's throwing it on rocks, on paths, right? Birds eat here, dummy. Don't throw seed there. He don't care. He's throwing seeds everywhere. I call it the parable of the indiscriminate sower because he just tosses it out. And yeah, birds are going to pluck some of them up. And yeah, weeds are going to choke some of them out. And rocks are going to make some of them unable to grow and shoot roots down into the earth. But some of them will bear fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. The kingdom will grow but the seed has to be sown. So you think about the application for us. Of course, there's the application of thinking about our missionaries that we support. We think about our missionaries that are out there and around the globe, training pastors, planting churches, doing things out there where we, we're unable to do that in different places. But we're not just called to support missionaries, we're called to be missionaries it doesn't take getting a degree it doesn't take um, a certain level of expertise it takes having received the message yourself and you can convey that to other people we might stumble around a little bit I hope that you're helped by the class that we're going to have tonight come on out (laughs) I need that class as much as any of you but it's not like, oh, I'll take a few classes and then it'll click. I'm suddenly an evangelist. No, it, it, we have to understand that this is the only way people can be saved. Could God have done it some other way? Could God do dreams, make, shape the clouds in ways that communicates for us and we don't have to preach? He opted not to do that. In his sovereignty, he raises up weak, frail, scared disciples, empowers them with the Holy Spirit, and unleashes them on the world. We're missionaries. It's just a matter of whether we're living into it or not. I love the encouragement he gives when he says, well, I guess none of them believe. No, not they don't all believe. But remember, he's telling the Israelites. The reason why he's explaining this is because so many Gentiles are coming in then. And the Israelites are like, man, what, what is going on here? And Paul's like, what's going on is the gospel. The gospel goes out and it's effective and people come. Let's preach it.